0: Everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest Podcast. Let's get started. For over 25 years, Brian Megan has represented U.S. and multinational clients in their corporate matters, primarily on business transactions such as mergers and acquisitions, business formation and structure, contract negotiation, real estate, dec- debt and equity issuance, and shareholder and employee agreements. His recently former firm, <laughs> Emergent Law, is listed in the best law firms in America, Colorado, for corporate law, and is the exclusive mergers and acquisitions and real estate firm in Colorado for IR Global Legal Network. Brian has a vast experience as an entrepreneur. In fact, he and I met through Entrepreneur's Organization, of which we're both members. He has run other businesses in the past. And the cool thing is, and the reason why is in his bio I said, that aversion is his former firm is because as of a few days ago, when this podcast is airing, meaning effective January 1 of 2000, Brian has merged his practice into Kupfer and Associates formally, which is now called Kupfer, period. And Brian has become a partner with me, my partner in building Kupfer going forward. So I am so excited to welcome him to the firm, but also have him on the Deal Quest podcast. Brian, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Corey. I'm excited about it. Uh, it's a big deal. We in our careers, we make uh, a few moves, hopefully not too many. And uh, this one I founded a I think back in 2014, I think it was. And so this is we're now in 2024. So it's, it, it's not often that we make these kind of moves and uh, I couldn't be more excited to be a partner with you. And, and like you said, it, it Having a, a kinship in the uh, entrepreneurial uh, bent and, and mindset is is really important to whoever I was going to uh, practice with. So, thank you.
0: Absolutely, and listen, folks, this is a huge opportunity for us in terms of our growth as a firm and be able to handle the the growth we have already, and then obviously adding in Brian's client base and connections. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that. But this podcast is also as all of my listeners and viewers know we always come with content and substance. This is not just going to be a commercial for our new partnership. It will be it will contain substance as well and and interesting things about Brian's experience and things you can learn about M&A and corporate work and other kinds of deals. But before we get into all that, Brian, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 18, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is an entrepreneur, an attorney might not have been it, but I don't know. You tell me.
1: Yeah, no. Around that time, I I was pretty sure I was going to become an aerospace engineer. I were I was heading to the Air Force Academy, but then I learned about this whole. My eyes are incredibly nearsighted, and in 2020, eventually got the the LASIK uh, process. But uh, before that, was going to hold me back from being a fighter pilot which of course top gun and iron eagle and all those things like it was just it was all about jet planes definitely not I grew up in a family that had a bunch of attorneys they they were litigators and I didn't want to do that that was not the type of law I wanted to do I was always interested in business which is why I did eventually go into and get my business degree at the University of Colorado focused in on accounting
0: love it love it and there was also a little stint where you would play some baseball right Baseball, yeah. I played for
1: uh, CU. I actually tried out the minors with the Brewers organization up in Montana and was scouted my senior year, Uh, but I didn't end up playing. I was a pitcher, but didn't think that uh, I was going to go very far in the minor system. And I had a girlfriend at the time, which eventually became my wife and was trying to get uh, a little bit better grades to make up for the early days of college.
0: (laughs) It was a good thing too. It helped me get into law school. Absolutely, and wonderful long-term marriage with your wife. So right, it was a right. double benefit. And one more question: Looking back, can you think of a your first deal of any type? Maybe it was something on your own when you were younger. Maybe it was something early in your career as a lawyer. Whatever comes to mind as, a, as an early deal. It was a couple
1: different things that come to mind. First, like you, I started out doing labor and employment law, and boy, as a first or second year lawyer. I had the opportunity to go up and negotiate a a new uh, union contract for a TV station up in Montana and flying back and forth and sitting running point on the deal. It was heady stuff for a young lawyer, and there were definitely some dramatic moments in that. And then when I did start in corporate law, I early on did an acquisition for a Canadian company, a software-based company. They had a local Colorado-based software company they were acquiring and right away got into the into the deal work and, and with an international bent, which I've had the opportunity to do a few times now.
0: That's great. It's interesting for us, we mentioned in the bio and you alluded to it in your comments, this conversation of being an entrepreneur and there are only so many lawyers in EO, for example, most of the members of EO by far are not attorneys. I think yeah. we're probably underrepresented as a... Profession, I would guess. I don't know that to be sure. I'm, I'm, after being in since 2018, that's my observation. And, and and just generally, the lawyers, some of them tend to be self-employed. But I always make a distinction with ent- entrepreneurship. So, talk to me about that difference in terms of your experience of being an entrepreneurial attorney as opposed to maybe some of our other colleagues who don't have that identity and don't travel in those circles.
1: I think that the career path is dramatically different when you start out typically as an associate in a firm and you're given responsibility over small projects that perhaps, you know, your primary job is to help the the partner with whatever it is that partner is asking you to do, make them look good, support them in research or collecting X and Y data from the client. And, And then over time, you might develop those relationships and you might get to take over clients but nowhere in there do you hear about the ins and outs of being a business owner. And in fact, I've certainly had those experiences where you've got people that you can see have never, until they become a partner, they really have never even thought about themselves as being a business owner. And when they are confronted with that stark reality, they're not super excited about it either. And they've, there is a, in in many cases, a resistance to some of the realities of business ownership. So coming from a completely different place where I, that was actually my primary focus was I wanted to be a business owner and had the opportunity to do that as a lawyer a couple different times. I I started a law firm with some law school classmates of mine when I was about five years out and hiring first employees and going through lease negotiations and build outs and all the stuff that everybody goes through when they're starting up a business, that that certainly colored and scratched some of that itch. But eventually that became then some uh, the impetus for my starting up uh, back office services company That that really gives, it's not a law firm at all. And when you day to day are thinking about business issues both for your clients but for yourself as well there is a different mindset and the primacy of those thoughts really i think affects your analysis when you're when you are providing that advice because you're it's in the forefront of your mind it's not something that you deal with once a month in a partner meeting it's something you're dealing with day to day
0: yes yeah, so one of the things that I that I often say, and it, I feel like it's it's certainly been a competitive advantage over the years, is that what business people do is that you can't be successful without taking risk. Now, part of the job of a lawyer is to try to identify risk, make sure the client's taking knowing risk, mitigate them the best you can. But so many of our colleagues are over-indexed on risk. And I think what happens when you go on the entrepreneurial side, you also get to, I think you better balance the opportunity. Yes, risk mitigation, risk identification is part of the process. but that's got to be balanced against the upside opportunity and the understanding that there is no such thing as a business that's been successful without taking risk. And I've, I mean, you, we've, and we've had some offline conversations. yeah, and I just as I know we're aligned on this, but I think just having that practical business experience of running your own firm, running other types of businesses as an I think helps understand that balance better and, and, and combats the law school training over indexing on risk. I couldn't
1: agree with you more. I, I think there are many times where the lawyer will stop short and doesn't want to engage in a more, I would say, personal conversation with the client because it's an area that they don't, they just want to identify it and they want to explain it. And then that's it they don't want to tell you what to do. And it's not that I'm telling a client what to do, but I can at least in a first person kind of way say, look, here's some similar situations I've been in. Okay. Let me put myself in your situation. Let me look out at the world for a second. I do think that's something that really is, should be part of the lawyer's tool belt when assisting clients and when they're when Whether it's because they don't have the personal experience to bring to bear or they're too afraid to wade into those waters, I think that the client misses out on on things there. Yeah.
0: I'm going to go in an interesting direction for us. And, and by the way, listeners and viewers, as you may know or not know, these interviews, whether it's with other guests or this one with Brian, are never pre-rehearsed or pre-planned. Yeah. They're never. <laughs> Brian didn't get a set of questions. I didn't give it, even though he's he's my partner now. <laughs> uh, I didn't give it any indication on where this discussion is going to go. I just feel into what I feel is next and what will serve the audience. Brian, we have just entered into a brand new partnership. We have both been in partnerships before. Uh, some of those have, have ended not because there were anything horrible. It was just evolution, right, of different interests or things people want to do. I know you're very close and friendly with some of your ex-partners, as am I. In fact, Arnie who handles our trademark and intellectual property work for, uh, I've had a 30-year relationship with, he's a former law partner, Armani, he's still affiliated with the firm, right? But also, we have personally, and also through our representation of others, experienced and seen the challenges that come up in business partnerships as well. Let's get a little meta here, not that we're going to talk about, we don't have the the partnership experience yet to get too meta on our own situation, but... um, But let's talk about this a little bit because business partnerships are a deal. We've had people on the podcast in the past. It's actually been a little while since we had uh, somebody talk about that. Let's talk about what are the advantages and what are some of the challenges of being in a business partnership. That's a great question and certainly timely. I'll just share that
1: the day that this was recorded, to your point, I literally just finished scheduling an annual ski trip with some of my former partners. It's uh, those relationships remain alive and well. A partnership. Look, business is it's about people. And that's at the fundamental level, this is about people. Whether you're doing a deal is about people, a partnership is about people, a, a dispute is about people. Yeah. And when you have two people that come into a relationship, just like you do in a in a marriage or or in any other type of personal relationship, friendship, you have Two people that have expectations and you, there's clearly some sort of chemistry, there's an excitement, there's a positivity to that connection. And they certainly enter into those relationships expecting that they want either complementary things or that they both want the same thing. So often people believe that they're on the same page. But someone's same page when I say that we both really want to grow the firm and we want to continue its its high reputation as a firm that produces excellent results. I used a whole bunch of language in there that we both could agree with and shake our heads and go, you bet, what does that really mean? And that means that I want to be the spend thousands and thousands of dollars promoting in these big, shiny events. You may say, oh, no, that's not what it means. It means, so all of a sudden, we realized that we wanted the same thing. But what we mean by that doesn't mean the same thing. And that's where disputes happen, whether partnership or outside party litigation. That's where in deals, when you're doing due diligence and you're writing deal terms and you're saying, you have none of this in a representation. And you go, oh no, I don't have any of that. And then you get into conversations and you realize the person has a completely different idea as to what you're, at least the lawyer is interpreting that language to be. And are like, oh, I realize that you have a, a one view of this, but I think we have to broaden that definition so that we make sure we meet what might be someone else's perspective. And that's Here, I just made that into a commercial, but that's really, I think, at the base of partnerships, successful and unsuccessful, the more that they can articulate in a written form, that that is something that definitely helps minimize the chance for that gap in understanding, where we look at something on the written page and say, and it isn't just aspirational, it's not just big goals, but it's more specific things. And that's where buy-sell agreements come into play and partnership agreements. That's our job is to try to suss out those places where there might be a, a, a miss, where you're saying the same thing, but let's try and get that into something more specific.
0: Yeah. Love that. Love that. And, and the other thing I'll say, and again, I'll share on a metal level, it's there's the legal due diligence, the financial due diligence and the cultural due diligence. And and even this word, due diligence, is what law- you know, us lawyers call uh, the research of the things you're going to do. But Brian said the key thing, which is relationship, right? Business deals, everything, are all about people and people are in relationship. So sure, did Brian and I exchange our numbers and uh, we talked about how the deals are going to work and how we're going to figure out the economics and how we're going to make decisions and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely we did. But the other thing we did is spent many hours in Zoom boxes and then also... I got on a plane and went to Denver, and uh, not only did we talk business, but I stayed at his home, and I met his family and his wife and his kids, and we went out to dinner, and we took a hike. And <laughs> and, I, and I don't want to, I just want to use that as an example. To me, that stuff is important, right? If you're going to be in any kind of ongoing business relationship with somebody, and I get that different relationships are different, in a, but certainly in a partnership deal, at, at least and some others... Spending that time together, getting to know each other, I, I always say, hey, try to at least have dinner with the the person and their significant other, right? In a, a relaxed environment. And if you're somebody who will have a drink or two, have a drink or two. Let them loosen up, right? <laughs> Let's try to get to the real. And that, that practical, just time together, and especially, I believe, in appropriate situations where it could be outside of a conference room or a business context. And we did both, right? We spent a chunk of a day in a conference room, drilling down on due diligence and numbers, and then we took a nice hike and had a wonderful dinner and woke up the next morning, had some coffee. And so I think both ends of that are, are crucial, going back to what Brian mentioned about relationships. That's what it's about. Yeah, no, it's, uh,
1: look, it, it's, it's going to work because of relationships and it's, it, or it won't work because of the relationship. So often, and this is, once again is true, whether it's partnership agreements or, or uh, acquisition agreements, the words on the page are, at a certain level, are only as good as the people behind the words that are being stated. What I mean by that is that if I tell you something that I'm going to do something and i I have no conviction, I have no my morals aren't such that i'm I follow through on things, and I'm going to do everything I can to squirrel away and to keep access to my assets away from you whether that's because I don't have any or because I've shielded them or whatever, I don't care what the contract says. That's a broken deal. And it's never, there's not a lawyer in the, on the globe that can write the perfect contract. That's always going to, that's going to come out with the outcomes that you want because it comes down to people. And and we can't control that. We can just minimize. We can do our best to keep it between the, the goalposts. But at the end of the day, it's going to be relationships.
0: So let's say that the relationship due diligence has been done, the other more legal and financial due diligence have been done, no red flags, so that the cultural fit seems to be right. What are some of the other things that derail deals, whether it's m and partnership deals in general? What are some of the other things that come in the way of getting a deal done?
1: Yeah, I think I'll try not to rehash what I, right where I was before, and that comes down to people. Yeah. Let me take a different tack first and then I'll come back to that. But sometimes it's financing. Sometimes it's the expectation around whether it's that the acquirer thought that they were getting something or that the business had something. And as they dig deeper into the financials, they realize that whether the emperor has no clothes or it's maybe it's the company has a a great revenue stream, but it's coming from two sources. And those sources, the fundamentals of those sources are very unstable, two clients that might go away or have been having problems. And so now all of a sudden this big revenue number doesn't mean as much. So there's that piece, there's the, the financing piece where a, an acquirer might have thought that they had access to certain capital or they could get it for a certain price. On this time of high interest rates, we've all seen that makes deals tougher. When you think that you're pricing in a certain interest rate for the loan you're going to get to buy that company, and that interest rate's higher, or the terms are such that now they're going to keep a bunch of your capital as part of the debt requirements, that changes the deal. And now that same deal is worth a lot less to you or much more expensive. Yeah. Let me go back then to the human side. We all have from the finance piece. We have expectations. I'll use a, a simple example. If I sold my house or I bought a house two years ago, I have an expectation as to what that house and I did. I have an expectation of what that house is worth. But when the the market slides in that interim period, and this is the same for, for those business owners, and they think that they have an idea as to what their business is worth, but the market has shifted. Now, you no longer, what is reality? Maybe the reality is that, frankly, when I thought it was worth this, I was willing to sell, but now I'm not because it's not worth that anymore. And finally, it's the risk piece. I see people get afraid on both sides of the deal where either the acquirer gets spooked by something they find in diligence. And again, this comes from that lack of established trust Maybe they were burned before. Maybe they just, they don't know the person well enough and they're not willing to take the chance. But they see something, they're worried about something. And on the other side, the sellers, it's no big deal. And if you're going to make a big deal of this, then we're not doing this because that's too much risk on my side then. No, we're we're done. There's a lot of that.
0: Yeah, that last piece is interesting because it's one of the reasons why when we prep clients for, what we go through our pre-due diligence process, right? Let's take an M&A deal where, where you're representing the seller. We're representing the seller. The buyer is going to come in and do all kinds of due diligence and you want to get ahead of that, right? Any good lawyer advisor is going to do that, Get check out, get everything ready in advance so you know what the buyer is going to be asking for. And one of the things I always say though to sellers, especially or in other deals in different circumstances, when they say, oh yeah, this happened, but it's no big deal. You always say to them, listen, this is what you have to understand. The due diligence folks on the deal, I'm not talking about the CEO or who it was that gave the green light on the deal, who you shook hands or whatever. The due diligence team they send, whether it's the lawyers, whether it's the accountants, whether it's the HR people, whether it's the procurement people, whatever it is, they come in with a mentality that they have more downside if they miss something and this deal goes through than if the deal doesn't go through, right? They personally have more downside. So they're looking for stuff. And for them, sometimes where they smoke, they assume there's fire. So what you think is no big deal, because it's really not, is smoke for them. It's the thing that Brian was talking about. Something seems not right, and it gets them nervous, right? And the nerves is not only about what the smoke, but it's what else don't I know, right? What is, if this is there, then what else is there? So that's why it's so important to do this pre-due diligence and not assume that they're going to last stuff off, because you want to avoid even the smoke <laughs> so that they don't worry That this fire as well, and that's expression.
1: That 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 brings up a really important point too, and it relates to your deal team. So, do you have a deal team that's that is that has the awareness and understands the importance of building trust in the other side? Because there are decisions that we all make throughout the deal process. All right, we've got this. Let's say that there's something out there that we know is going to be uncomfortable. And we need to, at some point, this is going to come out. So I, in my view, a good approach is to try to get, like you said, ahead of that and to message that early and do it in a way that is, even in your, just the small communication, look, we understand this may be unsettling, but let me explain. Okay. And and I want to bring this to you rather than waiting for you to see it in the diligence room and find it. I want to bring it out to you now. And I'm telling you that because I want to build trust in our back and forth here. Nobody's trying to hide anything. Nobody's trying to pull one over on you. I want to tell you the things that you want to pay attention to. And then I want to tell you why this is not something that should create undue concern. There is a level of concern. We understand that, but not undue concern. And even those small things help build trust from the other side so that they start to believe that maybe you're not going to slide something in on the last second. And when people aren't sensitive to that enough, when the deal team isn't sensitive to that enough,
0: you can be the reason why that deal doesn't go through. Yeah. And then listen, as a, as part of the deal team, as a professional, the last thing you ever want to be is the reason that deal doesn't go through. If- the deal should otherwise go through. There's a difference between figuring out, pointing out, find something in due diligence that says, whoa, 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 you got to look at this. Are you sure you still want to do this? Versus being somebody who is just not good at presenting things, heading things off at the pass, anticipating being flexible and creative on deal terms, all that kind of stuff that great professionals and deal teams should do. So yeah, that's absolutely crucial. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can tell you about an incredible resource my team and I have put together for you. Secrets of Deal-Driven Growth, Creative Ways to Grow Your Business Even in Challenging Times is a powerful ebook that helps you take Quest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business. This is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as deal makers, and you can get yours now. It's as easy as heading to coreycupford.com workbook and downloading your copy. While you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic, deal driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back for the show. I I don't even know if there are many distinctions here in what you're seeing, but I'm going to try this because, again, we're not scripted. You, your practice has been in in Colorado and the Denver area for a while. You you do business there. You do have clients nationally. And when I say you, it's now all us, but I'm obviously, since we're at the very beginning of this partnership, I'm talking about Brian's experience Diversion law before we uh, merged in, um, you know we have cl- clients nationally, and, and you're also in this international lawyers' alliance, right? Mm-hmm. So you see what's happening internationally. Anything you're seeing on a local level? at international national level or an international level and are the trends different? Are they very aligned? Sometimes those things are aligned, sometimes they're very different, right? Things could be going poorly internationally, but great domestically, or there's a there's a hot spot going on in Denver or not. So yeah. any anything that's interesting on whether it's local, national, uh, international, or comparatively.
1: Right now, I do think that there are differences and they probably line up with consumer confidence indexes if you go regionally. Denver is we're doing okay. And I think there is more confidence in this region in the Rocky Mountain region in terms of business overall direction of profits. And we still have a, a labor shortage that doesn't quit. I can speak to from the other side as a once again as a business owner. There are there's been some pain there for a really long time and so i think that continues to buffet the the expectations of parties and i think that we are while things are down from their highs i think there's still a pretty solid confidence in uh, in getting things done more nationally i think that the coast's have been hit pretty hard i don't want to talk about your neighborhood but out, out i'm california they've had some tough times there and even the mentality of what the the downtown markets have experienced i think that creates a lot of uncertainty as to how business gets done moving forward and i think that on top of the rising interest rates there's it's a little harder i haven't done recently as much in other parts of the country but i can pull from just a year two ago when we were doing more more things in different parts of the country internationally There's that difference is even more pronounced. I, there are, and, and really with internationally, it's always interesting to me to listen to these practitioners from Europe or from the EMEA region or South America and the timing of when they're going through things. There's a lot of times where there's, they will lag behind us. We're starting to hit the skids here in the U.S., and they're still running hot, but they know that it's coming. And yet, at other times, they're the ones hitting it sooner. Right now, from the folks that I know in Europe, I think that things are, have quieted down a lot. The My friends in Germany and in the U.K. and down in Italy and Spain, they're less busy than they were. And deals are, are, are tougher. That's that's most recent. I'll, I'll be heading shortly to another international event at the end of February, and we'll be eager to hear how things are, are going out there. We're in touch, but never as good as when you're in person across a dinner or lunch table talking to these folks about what's going on uh, in their practices day to day.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of the headwinds we've seen here have definitely hit. And of course, international is a big, there's varying issues within that, but certainly Europe and a lot of the international places have experienced the increased cost of capital, higher interest rates, higher inflation. In fact, our inflation has come down significantly comparatively. And theirs have actually, has actually stayed in a lot of the countries has stayed higher. They have not brought it down like we have. Those are some stronger headwinds there. But it's, but it's interesting because one of the things I often say, and I'd love to, you, you've you been doing this more than a couple of years, like I have. And so we've both seen uh, a number of cycles and different economic situations. And one of the things I often say is that when deals slow, it's usually much more just during that period, initial period of change, because you talked about somebody who buys a house two years ago, or the same thing with a business, that there's an expectation of value. And now if the markets come down... And the cost of capital has gone up. You have this convergence of factors and sellers are not often not ready yet to get that number from a year or two go out of their mind. But at some point, they they adjust, right? It just happens. At some point, the market gets more realistic in the gap between, let's say, seller expectations and buyer and buyer's willingness to pay based upon cost of capital and underwriting <laughs> their deals and values and cap rates and all that stuff, depending on what asset class you're talking about. And then the deals start up again. Talk to me a little bit about just some of the some of the ups and downs you've seen and how you've seen them affect deal flow or types of deals or how things evolved during these tougher times and the stronger times and back and forth.
1: Yeah. A few years into practice was the dot bomb for me. I came out of school in 97 and dot bomb was, in my head, seemed to be as significant as the Great Recession was only because I didn't have the context to put it in perspective. But when you see that downturn and that massive loss of value across so many different companies that were the darlings six months before, and it's so sudden, it's jolting as a professional much less when you're the one that has the company that experiences that. What I realized, though, is... There's always that period where things quiet down and nobody wants to do anything for a minute because they're just trying to get their footing. And then there's a period where people figure out that equity is a way to reduce capital outflow or expenditure in a deal, but still get value in into the future. And so you start to see deals with a lot more, a larger equity component. The big negotiation is what's the value of this equity. But that's easier to do because that's between two parties typically deciding what they're going to agree is the value rather than, hey, if I take out a million dollars, I know what the interest rate is on that and I'm going to pay this much. How about we give you a million dollars in equity and that For us, we're going to give you a valuation that's a little more favorable because things have slid. And how's that sound? Okay, now we got a deal on the table again. We're not going to, maybe we don't do it all in equity, but we're going to do a good portion of it in equity. And then we're going to give you a way to get to take your chips off the table over a period of time. We don't want you to pull the trigger as soon as it hits X dollar, but will give you a way to exit out and that can be a win for both parties. And that's what I see happening now on this period where people are like, okay, I think I got my head around this. I see that interest rates are moderating a bit, but they're still higher than I would like. Here's a way to get this deal done. Here's a way that we can make sure that we we can continue to move on with our lives because hey, when people want to get out, whether it's because the business is at the right angle, Things are going when we want to get out on top, or it's because of a personal issue or whatever. Business doesn't stop because the markets are down. We got to find a way to make that happen.
0: Yeah, and I love that example of shifting to more equity. And that's it's something that yeah often happens in in down markets. And and there are other adjustments that happen as well. Uh, sometimes there's the sellers are willing to do more seller financing if it's harder to get outside capital. Right, that's a shift that we see. come down. Maybe. You, uh, things are paid over a longer period of time, right? Deal structures change. There's the I've said this for a few times on the podcast, is the old joke that with deal lawyers or deal investment bankers, any money in the deal world, and says, give me a price, I'll give you a structure, give me a structure, I'll give you a price. Right? I like that. Yeah. It's, if you want 10 times or even a hundred times more than your company's worth, yes, odds are I'm not going to be able to pay it. But the truth is I can come up with a structure where that will work for me as a buyer. Give me a hundred years to pay it. I probably can figure it out. So there's always a and we joke about that, but that's, what, that's realistically is what one of the things that starts to happen in changing or down or high interest rates or whatever it is, economies, is that other levers start moving and people get more creative on the deal front. And one of those is, is structuring, right? Whether it's length of payments, whether it's shifting risk, whether it's you know escrowing more funds, smaller down payments, like there's a lot of ways more equity. There's a lot of ways to share risk or minimize or restructure things that at lower prices but bigger earnout uh, opportunities just in case the market does come back. There's all of these things that happen uh once people, like you said, you have this period where they're getting their footing and trying to figure it out. But then there are all these levers that can happen once once they start getting psychologically comfortable. And that's really what it is, right? Because there's a lot of creative ways to here. figure it out. It's back to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's back to people. Exactly. So Brian, before I ask you my final two questions as we come towards the end here, and I'm—is uh, there anything else that, that just comes to mind that uh, in the deal or entrepreneurial market right now or that you think might be interesting to the listeners, Any whether it's trends or things you're saying or any other topics that
1: come to mind? I think what I find interesting, I don't know if this is going to be responsive to your question, but what I found interesting is that during COVID, we had a massive spike in, we'll call it entrepreneurship. The number of entities that were formed over COVID blew away the prior numbers, which kind of reminds us that, you know, for all the negative news out there, there is something to the American spirit that still is quite alive and well, and maybe necessity is the mother of all invention on that, but regardless of the reason, there have been a lot of new businesses formed and a lot of new dynamics that were introduced into the marketplace over COVID. And I think coupling that with an increased cost and capital, I think that there are probably a lot of businesses out there that are struggling to grow, but that are great businesses they just haven't been able they've got all the things that they needed except for that juice of additional capital to to really maximize their profitability to me that means that there is a great opportunity out there for acquisition of businesses that are underperforming right now because they don't have good access to capital and if you're somebody that does either have access to capital, or already has something that that has allowed your business to grow because you figured out the right fit or formula or marketing people or whatever it is. There's great opportunity out there, and and I think that with as long as interest rates don't start spiking again, I think that there's we're about to enter into a, a moment of massive opportunity, and, and I'm excited to to see how that goes and trying to buckle in for what that means for us as deal lawyers
0: absolutely absolutely so listeners at this one i usually ask the guests uh way can people find out more about them but that is at cupforlaw.com now <laughs> uh, you can please go take a look at uh, brian's bio and when i alluded to it in the intro But I I want to give a little context. Brian, for many years, they did not allow brands outside of the lawyer's name in most states, or I think in all states in some way, to be used. Colorado had allowed that much, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I think you told me. New York, it was just within the last couple of years. In the early days, I would not have branded the firm after myself. When I speak to my clients, I tend to lean towards the camp of branding independently from the founder to create a separate brand and Brian and I discussed it and we said should we change the name of the law firm now and unfortunately or unfortunately in some unfortunately in some very great ways and unfortunately in, in terms of that desire the cup the brand has been around a long time and developed some brand equity in it it was Brian's idea actually to move from cupford associates to cupford period and because it really is not cupford associates anymore right Brian and I are partners in this firm uh now and we do have associates beyond that and and we have this platform and ability to continue to grow between his base and my base. And we've now turned it into Cup for period, as a brand, not as a person. And Brian's a key partner and piece of that. And I'm excited to have him on board. And I just uh, want to say that prior to asking my final question. Please check out his stuff. He's on LinkedIn as well. Check out cupforlaw.com and check out uh, Brian's bio and uh, those that we have many clients and key industry folks and referral sources to listen to this podcast and if you haven't met Brian yet, some of you have, you're definitely going to be hearing a lot more about him as we go forward in our work. Brian, so my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And that means everything for me from freedom around the world, from for people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. But what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Wow.
1: Like you, I, I was a terrible employee. And we have a half joke in our forum. We have t-shirts that say, unemployable. And that's because the value that we all place on being able to have that ability to spend time, whether it's with family needs or personal things, the path of the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial lawyer has been incredibly important to me. It also has been important in the way in which I do law. I have not wanted to be told how to counsel clients. There, That doesn't mean that I haven't gotten uh, some great uh, training and, and advice over the years, but it's something that I've been able to evaluate. And I think that freedom is something that I hope I can help others achieve through being a lawyer. My clients, I—that that is something that there's plenty to go around, and just because I'm, I don't need to steal all the the freedom in that uh, relationship dynamic. I hope to be a uh, a freedom facilitator, in many
0: ways. It's a big one. Love that freedom facilitator. That's a great, great term. Love that so much. Ryan Megan, my new partner. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Quest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success, and share what's working best, as well as what challenges we are facing right now. You will get input not only from me, but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupfor.com slash DealDen. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.